Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Guys, good to be with you today. Uh, if you'll notice, I am in a jacket here, so you know this is serious. Uh, so let me pray, and then uh, we've got some work to do here in Romans chapter 1. Jesus, we need you today uh, to guide us, to direct us, to open our hearts to hear your word, to soften our hearts, to hear a hard word. Uh, God, everything in us uh, wants to reject and fight against conviction, uh, fight against complicity, uh, fight against any feelings of, of guilt that we might feel or challenge to previously held ideas. And Lord, uh, what is uh, especially difficult about a, a passage like this one is it's going to challenge all of us in really different ways on opposite ends of many spectrums. Uh, this is a passage that goes at everybody. And I kind of love that, uh, but it makes it hard. So we need your spirit uh, to a great degree today. Lord, speak through me. May my words be your words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, we've been talking about how the book of Romans is written to a church in Rome um, that was, if not the first, certainly the most significant multi-ethnic church uh, in the early church period. Right? So um, what had happened historically was that uh, after the church had been founded with both Jews and Gentiles, many of the Jews, for political reasons, were forced to leave Rome and were only now returning to find a church that had been dominated primarily by Gentiles and Gentile leaders um, in the years that they had been gone. So as they reintegrate, there is friction between the Jews and the Gentiles, very clear racial, ethnic friction. Now. Paul um, is writing this book to them in part, now, and, and I would say in large part, to give them a gospel framework for how to be the church together. So um, the first 11 chapters are dealing in large part with these multi-ethnic issues, and then 12 to 16 um, is re really gets practical for how we should live together. One of the things that Paul is trying to do is to create a level playing field. Right? So in verses 1 through 17, he laid the foundation of the gospel, saying that the only currency in the kingdom of God is faith. Not nationality, not background, not wealth, not power, not success, nothing. The only thing that counts for anything in the kingdom of God is faith, that we would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus, that God saves, that's what Jesus means, that Christ, the anointed one, that Jesus was the one anointed by God to save, and that he is our king, that he is our Lord who rules us and we submit to his lordship in our lives. That believing that and living faithfully in that is the only currency in the kingdom of God, right? So we started with the fact that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. But um, it kind of begged the question, why? Why did God need to reveal his righteousness? So last week we looked at verses 18 through 23 where Paul says that God's wrath 
is also revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So first Paul goes, listen, faith is the only currency in the kingdom of God. This is this kind of leveling effect that, that the gospel has. And now he's going to talk about sin. The, we talked last week about the nature of sin, primarily as suppression of truth and idolatry, misattribution of the good things of this world. Um, and now we're going to see kind of what the outcome of sin is. I told you last week that um, we were going to talk about what the kind of shape of God's wrath looks like. And, and uh, it's maybe not what we think. So um, we're going to see in a moment how Paul is going to kind of unveil God's wrath. But I have to be honest with you. This is as straight no chaser uh, as Paul's going to get, right? We, we named this series after the famous Thelonious Monk song, Straight No Chaser, which is referenced to, I'm not sure. Um, but um, this idea of Paul going straight at it, that's what we're going to see here today. So let's jump in. Verse 24. Therefore, right? Anytime you see therefore, it is there for a reason. Trick I learned in junior high. So you always want to look before and go, okay, why is the therefore there? So before it, in verse 23, it says that the, the primary way in which this sinfulness kind of played out was that the, these people, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptile. This substitution that was idolatry right? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, right? So, because of idolatry, God's wrath is revealed. God's present wrath is being revealed. This is not future wrath. Future wrath will take on a slightly different flavor, but present wrath, the present wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness as what? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. That's the wrath of God. It's, it's genuinely remarkable. The present wrath of God is revealed as him letting us live out the full ex, fullest expression of our desires. A Swiss uh, theologian by the name of Frederick Godet says it this way. He says, he ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. This, this makes me think of something that my kids do all the time. They'll come up to me, they'll stand on my feet and they grab my hands and then they'll lean back, right? They'll lean back and they'll go, let go. And I go, okay, let's just stop for a second and think about this, kid. Uh, if I let go, you will just fall backwards and smack your head and then cry and look at me like I'm the bad guy. No, I'm not the bad guy. You're the dummy that wants me to let go, right? The grace of God is that while we lean away from him, he holds our hands tight. The wrath of God is that when we lean and lean and lean and lean and say, stop holding on, stop restricting me, stop stopping me, let me be who I want to be, God goes, all right, I'll let you go. 
that the wrath of God is revealed as God giving us over to, it says here, the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Lust um, isn't always sexual. In this case, we'll see how it is. Lust just simply means desires, passions, right? And so God's going, okay, if this is who you want to be, if this is the freedom that you desire, you want to trade me out. You want to substitute me for your career or your spouse or possible future spouse or some sexual conquest or your bank account or cultural power or in-group identity. Cool. Let's see how that works out for you. That, that's the wrath of God, letting us be who it is we want to be. Um, an apocryphal book by the name of the Wisdom of Solomon uh, says it this way, one is punished by the very things by which one sins. Um, I, th I think the, the greatest uh, telling of this idea is C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. If you've never read The Great Divorce, I highly recommend it. Uh, Lewis is a bit of an obscure author, but I'm a big fan. Um, and, and I would highly recommend The Great Divorce. It's a kind of a metaphorical telling of hell and heaven. And what's interesting about this book is that the pattern that happens over and over and over as these souls are brought to the, the foothills of heaven and are being beckoned in that the one thing that holds them up is they have to let go of something that made them somebody on earth. So for one of them, it's a, it's a mother who won't let go of her son. For another, it's an artist who won't let go of his self-expression. For another, it's a man who won't let go of his lust. For another, it's a, it's a woman who is shackled to this man out of pure shame and guilt and manipulation, but in the end, she can't quit him. And over and over and over, with, with heaven in view, these people are unwilling to give up that one thing. And it's just, it's a, it's a tremendously telling story about the power of idolatry over us. At what happens when God's wrath is revealed and we're allowed to go more deeply and more deeply and more deeply into our idol. Now, verses 24 and 25 are, are kind of the model for this section. It's kind of this, this middle verse, which kind of is the form for the whole thing. So I want to reread it because I want you to see what Paul's doing in this passage. It's actually pretty remarkable. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, this is the form of the way in which God's wrath is played out. That we substitute God for some thing. And in, in that, in that moment, God goes, okay, you want that thing? I'm gonna let you have that thing, but, but it's your funeral, right? Like literally it's, it's your funeral. This is, you're swapping me out for spouse or for career or future spouse or whatever. And, and you think that you, you can, you can worship and serve this thing and it's going to provide for you what I can provide for you. If you, if you really want to make that trade, you go ahead. Right? This is the form that this takes. Now, 
Um, I, I want us to see what Paul's doing here uh, rhetorically, right? He's building an argument, and Paul is always building arguments in his books. And he is doing something pretty remarkable here that I want us to see. Scott McKnight, a Bible commentator, uh, describes this section this way. He says, the words in Romans 1, 18 to 32, are a standard Jewish stereotype of the godless, idolatrous Gentiles of the diaspora, the, the spreading out. Romans 1, 18 to 32 does not describe all humans. Get back to that later. There is too much particularity and resonance with other Jewish texts in Paul's descriptions of sinful behaviors and idolatries for this to be about common human sinfulness. Not all Gentiles live out these sins. But this is a stereotype of the Jewish prophetic critique and accusation of paganism and its ways. Jews knew this description, believed this description, they repeated this description. This was the stereotype of the immoral pagan idolater. Okay, so when Paul is describing this sinner, right, when at the very beginning, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whoever he has in mind there, the Jews that are hearing this book have this stereotype in mind. They go, oh yeah, we know this guy, right? Like we know this description of the pagan idolater and it's these Gentiles, by the way, that you've led into our church, Paul. And they used this stereotype the way all stereotypes are used, to denigrate all members of a group. Now, Paul at this point had been doing ministry among the Gentiles for 20 years, right? Like he's heard these stereotypes. Every time he goes back to Jerusalem or every, anytime he's back around Jews, they're asking him like, man, what's that like being around those pagans? Man, are they just having orgies all the time? Like, what's that like? How, I mean, we know what they're like, right? I mean, some of the language we used to hear around missionaries overseas when they came back and you're like, man, that, that sounds crazy in China or it sounds crazy in Indonesia. It sounds crazy in Africa. Man, how do you even do that? Stereotypes. This is what Paul is retelling in his opening chapter. This description of Gentiles, which, by the way, was no doubt true of some of them, right? Like, these stereotypes don't just, um, just appear out of nowhere. But the problem and the danger, the evil of stereotypes, is when we take something that can be true and apply it to each and every member of a group. So he says, this description of Gentiles, no doubt true of some, was weaponized in ways so similar to the racial tropes that have been used to marginalize people of color in our own country. Tropes about black-on-black -black crime, about fatherlessness and drug addiction that have long been used to explain away racial prejudice and systemic discrimination. This is what Paul's doing. And, and we've got to be able to see that in this, that Paul is reciting some of these same racial stereotypes and all of the Jews that are hearing this are kind of nodding along ever so subtly going, yeah, Paul, you tell them. I like where this is going. They understand what, what, what argument Paul is making here. 
And this is super important that we have eyes for this because it allows us to, un to see the rest of this passage the way Paul intended, okay? Now this is where it's going to get hard. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up, again, gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is why I spent so much time making the point about Paul's rhetoric. Because otherwise, this verse, these two verses will trip us up and they can't. I want us to follow Paul's logic here right? Verse 25 is key. Verse 25, again, I'm going to read it again, because they substituted, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the fundamental move, right? God off the throne, thing, whatever it is, person, thing, or, or, or desire on the throne, right? That's the exchange of idolatry. Here's what happens. These people that he's talking about, not all Gentiles, but certainly some, have exchanged God for the created world. Paul is specifically calling out ways in which people have deified their bodies. He says they worship and serve their bodies. So what happens when we make an idol out of our bodies? Paul says that we give way to dishonorable passions. In other words, when we exchange God for our bodies, our bodies become gods, and as such, they become our highest authority. Whatever our bodies tell us is true. Whatever we feel is right. We have given our bodies authority over us. The desires and the passions that Paul refers to rule over the mind, the will, and the agency of the person. So, we end up saying things like, I didn't choose this, or it's just the way I am, or it feels right, or my mind's telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yes. Our passions and desires, our feelings rule us, they define us because we have given them the authority to do so. When you make something an idol, you give it the authority to define reality, to give identity, to direct our moral choices. Paul says that when we do that to our bodies, it leads us, ironically, to dishonor them. Think about this. When the body decides what it is, not the mind or the will or the spirit or God or anything, but the body decides what it is, and we have given it the power and the authority to do so, uncontrolled by the mind, the will, the spirit, it will certainly lead a person astray because it cares only for its own satisfaction. And this is what Paul describes. Now, quick side note. Culture does this weird thing where it, de it, it de deifies the desires of the body, but then because it knows that making something important also makes it precious, and if something is precious, then it has to be cared for and cultivated. 
But then that requires responsibility and restriction. You don't let a precious thing be used by whoever or whatever. So we do this weird thing where we deify the body and talk about how precious it is and sexual expression is, but then at the same time denigrate it by rationalizing our casual sexual behavior by saying, it's just sex. It's not a big deal. We can't make up our mind. Is sex no big deal or is it a really big deal? Is it nothing or is it everything? The answer that it it is in any given moment, exactly what we want it to be in order to justify whatever behavior we desire. Now, that's just a side note. Some of you are offended by this, and I get it. When you believe something so deeply, it's painful to uproot it. But, but I would challenge you with this, especially if you are a Christian, And a passage like Romans 1 uh, is offensive to you. I I would challenge you with this. If you worship and serve a God that always agrees with you about everything, and and I would challenge not just those who who are offended by Romans 1, but the people who love Romans 1 and are cheering right now at home, I want you to hear this as well. If God agrees with you about everything, Either you are remarkably faithful and should probably be doing my job, or you're worshiping yourself. And I've got a guess as to which one it is. But, but here, here's the thing. I, I have conversations with people all the time that basically say like, hey, my moral barometer is basically governed by the culture around me, right? Like wh- whatever is happening around me, like that's what kind of we collectively believe. And, and honestly, and, I, and I've had people say this very explicitly, like I just kind of go with what the culture says is good and right and what we should pursue. Well, that's crazy. Okay, because first of all, if you are affirming the good of whatever the culture today says is good, and that's your barometer, you have no moral standing to say racism and in fact slavery was wrong. Because if your guideline is whatever the culture around you affirms, you will affirm there have been many, many years where the culture at large has affirmed racism and slavery, and you would have no moral ground to say that was wrong. You might be able to say it is wrong, but not that it was wrong. And that is a difficult, to say the least, moral ground to stand on. And and what's more, you actually can't even say slavery and racism is wrong today with a capital W wrong because see, um, in China, there's like a million Muslim Chinese who are imprisoned right now and there they think that's okay. And so if you impose your sense of right and wrong, your cultural sense of right and wrong on them, then all of a sudden your morality is imperialistic and probably xenophobic. And I'm not sure that's where you want to stand either. Right, so we got to think through this stuff before we just decide to do away with it or ignore it or be, you know, it's wrong and I'm right or I'm going to embrace this or that. Like, we ought to kind of think through our position here. Now, Paul could have used any example 
but he chose to illustrate how idolatry works by using an example that Jews would have known and nodded their heads throughout, giving serious side-eye to the Gentiles that were next to them. Probably what's happening here is in this house church where this is being read, the Gen- Gentiles are on one side, the Jews are on the other side. And as, uh, the, as Phoebe is reading this, the, the Jews are kind of going, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the Gentiles are going, man, I thought Paul was our guy. And he's just, he's just pulling out these, these old stereotypes and these old tropes again. Is this, what, what have we walked back into? Doug Moo, uh, who is a Bible commentator, in fact, my kid's favorite Bible commentator, because his name is Doug Moo. And I mean, is he a cow? I've never seen a picture. Who knows? He says this, the focus on homosexual acts in these verses, again, reflects Jewish tradition, which often saw in homosexuality particularly striking evidence of Gentiles' idolatry and depravity. But get this, that part, this, the sexuality piece, this isn't Paul's point in the section. We have to see this, right? So we're going to go back to the rhetoric, what Paul is doing. He's rolling out this stereotype, these old tropes about who pagan Gentiles are. And the Jews are nodding along. The Gentiles are getting very uncomfortable. Now, remember, the first week I told you that what what happened is Paul wrote this letter, sent it with a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe was standing up in what was probably like half a dozen house churches in Rome reading this. Now, in those days, this, she would have been trained to read this dramatically. She would know which parts that Paul wanted to emphasize. I mean, this was, this was a performance in, in the best sense. So here's what's happening. Phoebe's reading these words from Paul, knowing full well what Paul's doing. And so as she's reading, when she looks up from the scroll probably. She's looking at the Gentiles, right? Reading these descriptions of the Gentiles, kind of glancing up at them. The Jews, happy about where this whole thing is going, are nodding along. Paul continues to kind of lay out these stereotypes. And and, and I'm going to dramatize this a little bit because I, I want us to be there, you know, where this happened. But there's this list of things that Paul's going to read. And I'm just, whether the Jews said it out loud, whether they thought it, I think this is kind of how this might have gone. So uh, verse 28, Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and the Jews are going, no, they didn't. God gave them up to a debased mind, so debased, to do what ought not to be done. I mean, honestly, I can't even think about what they were doing. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, so unrighteous, evil, you tell them, Paul, covetousness, they want all my stuff, and malice. They're so mean. They're so mean. Paul's, Phoebe's reading this list from Paul, and the Jews are just nodding along, but then something happens. Something happens to the list. Phoebe continues, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, my favorite one, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, What was happening is slowly as Phoebe's reading the rest of this list, her gaze turns from the Gentiles and it starts to move to the Jews. 
and there are just, uh, just enough words in the rest of that list for the Jews to start being a little bit aware that Paul might be talking about them, envy and strife and gossips, disobedience to parents. I mean, I feel like that Paul threw that one in just so like there was nobody in the room who was innocent, right? Phoebe's gaze slowly turns to the other side of the room. And then once he has their attention, he finishes strong saying they are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then the dagger in their hearts, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do them. Who knows God's decree? The Jews know God's decree. The Gentiles could see the the general revelation where Paul started at the top of this passage, where Paul began by going like, hey, they um, could know God because God made himself plain in what was created, his divine power, his nature. But then by the end of this monologue, he is saying, there are some who know God's decree. We've gone from general revelation to special revelation. And all of a sudden, the Jews in the room are going, oh, dang, he's talking about us. He set us up. We've been nodding along and amening along and being really happy about where this argument was going. But the whole time, he was actually setting them up. He says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not just do these things, not not only do they just do these things, but they approve of them. And and they give approval, They, they, they provide cover for those friends of theirs who are in their group who are doing things that they know are wrong, but they're their guys, right? And you can't ever violate the in group. By, by condemning your own guy. And so you approve of their sin, their ungodliness and unrighteousness. You protect them. You cover for them, even though you know they're doing the exact same things that the Gentiles do that you get all up in arms about. Even when they have to approve of demonstrably stupid and unchristian things because it's their guy. I mean... Do you know why presidents stand in front of churches and hold up Bibles? Because they know that they will get cover. Because they know that there's people who are like, that's demonstrably stupid and unchristian, but he's my guy. And if I admit that, then all of my other friends, all my other liberal friends will will pile on. I can't admit, I got to stick with my guy, even though I know that that is wrong. That it is idolatry in its highest form. Paul's going, listen, this this is you. And Paul set him up. And for the the dummies in the room who really didn't get it, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul goes, who needs the gospel now? At the beginning of this, as Phoebe's reading the beginning of Romans 1, they're, they're, they're going, tell him, Paul. Tell him who needs the gospel. Tell him where wrath is coming from. Tell him what the wrath of God is going to look like. And Paul goes, who needs the gospel now? Everyone in the dang room needs the gospel. 
Paul is using theology to level the playing field. The wrath of God is a cosmic autonomous zone left to our own desires. The, the Lumineers, uh, kind of folk indie hipster band, uh, had this line in one of their songs would say, the opposite of love is indifference. Let me tell you this. God giving us over to our sin is not a sign of God's indifference. It's a sign of God's love. God wants us to feel the end of our decisions. He spends so much time graciously buttressing us from the full impact of our decisions, graciously, mercifully protecting us from ourselves that every once in a while he goes, I just, I need you to know, you need to know the fullness of your decisions. And so I'm going to give you over to them and we're just going to see how it plays out when I do. He wants us to get to the ends of ourselves so that we see our need for a savior and a king. And that we see those idols for what they are. Weak liars who will demand more and more and more while giving less and less and less. They promise the world but deliver on nothing. And it's when we get to that point that the righteousness of God is revealed. The goodness of God as our Savior King who enters in right at the moment of our greatest need, our greatest awareness of need, where our soul is so shriveled by our own decisions that we know the only thing that can save us is our God. Paul just leveled the playing field. Every one of you needs the gospel because every one of you is the object of God's wrath. So don't for a moment try to, try to run your mouth about some tropes and stereotypes about those other people as a way to deflect from your need for the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. And uh, verses like this, passages like this, remind us that there is no one who doesn't need you. In fact, uh, a passage like this is, is one of my favorites. It's, it's, it's something that I just love about you, that you have the ability to, in one passage, offend everybody. Uh, I'm jealous. It's remarkable because you know that uh, in the hearts of everyone, when, when you start to push in one direction against kind of one group of people that everybody you're not pushing on immediately starts to feel haughty and self-righteous. And so you have the ability to push on everybody at once. Because, man, we all need the conviction of the Spirit to draw us back to our desperate need for you. So God, I, I pray that you will have softened our hearts so that, so that the, the word that you spoke today can get deep inside of us and really take root. So Lord, we are forever dependent upon you for all things. Lead us into unity. Lead us into grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response.
to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.